0: Well good evening. Good to see everybody. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to the Book of Revelation, Chapter 2. If you're new with us, we are studying the Book of Revelation here at Calvary on Wednesday nights and we have entered into the second major section, Chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches, real churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, Uh, that were having real problems and uh, needed some real corrections and even some some, um, commendation for the good things they were doing. But in these seven churches, we have a number of ways the Holy Spirit is using it beyond just these literal seven churches that were 2,000 years ago, half a world away from where we are. As we have been saying, that each of these seven churches... In a spiritual way, it presents a uh, period of church history, and we've been looking at this. Ephesus represents the first century church up until about A.D. sixty-three. Uh, the Church of Smyrna, the per- persecuted church, from eighty-sixty-four, roughly uh, through uh, the fourth century or the uh, or the three hundred period, and uh- last week we uh, started looking at the church of pergamos uh, which was a compromising church we'll finish that letter today but the church of pergamos symbolically represents the church christian church during the fourth and fifth centuries where christianity was recognized as the official religion of the state very uh, very uh, dark period of church history we studied that last time and uh, we want to just kind of pick that up, though, and finish this letter. So, uh, you know, we'll look at the intro and, and uh, commendation, verse 12. And so did the angel of the church in Pergamus write these things, says he, who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. We looked at all that last time. After the commendation, the Lord begins now the condemnation. What was wrong here? He says, verse 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Now we got as far as that last time so if you were not here and you'd like to know what all that means go online you can access that study. We really pick it up in verse 15 tonight but it's still part of the condemnation that Jesus is presenting to this church. He said thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans which thing I hate. Commentators are not in agreement who the Nicolaitans are, or if they're a group at all. Uh, They think maybe it was a doctrine or a philosophy. I think that's probably true. Um, Some of you may have a a Schofield reference Bible. Well, Dr. C.I. Schofield links this doctrine with the rise of the clergy. Of the clergy, he said, and I quote, It is the doctrine that is believed, this is what is being said here, He said, it is the doctrine that God has instituted an order of clergy or priests as distinguished from the laity. The word is formed, Nicolaitans, is a word that's formed from two Greek words, niko, which means conqueror or overcomer, and laos, the Greek word for people. The New Testament knows nothing of a clergyman. Still less of a priest, except as all the sons of God in this dispensation are a royal priesthood. In the apostolic church, there were offices, elders, bishop, excuse me, elders who were, the word bishop means overseers, so uh, elders are overseers, deacons, uh, and gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These might or might not be elders or deacons, but late in the apostolic period, that would be the first century period, there emerged a disposition to arrogate. Arrogate is a word that means to appropriate without the right to do so. Uh, Emerged the disposition to arrogate to elders alone, authority to administer ordinances and generally to constitute themselves as a class between God and the people. They were the Nicolaitans. You will observe that what were deeds. Remember the letter to Ephesus. He talked about how he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Uh, Schofield says you will observe that uh, that what were deeds in the uh, in the Ephesus letter or the late apostolic period has uh, now become a doctrine. Two hundred years later in the Pergamus or. Uh, Emperor Constantine, period, end quote. And, and that, if that's a little confusing, just understand something. What I believe the Nicolaitans is those who conquer or rule over the people. I believe it's the clergy. I mean, it's, it's not that God hasn't established pastors and elders as leaders. But the kind of leaders we're talking about, we talk about the clergy. In some church circles, they are a special group of men who have access to God because normal Christians are not worthy? We need a priest or a special mediator, some man on the earth that God is anointed with special holiness, too holy for you. God, you you can't come to God directly. They teach. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. We'll pick on them tonight. Uh, you know that they're, they're 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 famous for that, right? The, the Catholic Church still teaches that. The average Catholic can't even read the Bible and understand it because only the magisterium, only the upper echelon of the Catholic Church can even understand the Bible. Years ago, only they could read it because it was in Latin. Most people didn't speak Latin. Uh, That changed when they began translating the scriptures into English, which the Catholic Church killed many for doing so because they couldn't control the people by forcing people to to rely on them to tell you what the Bible said. Now they can read the Bible for themselves and the church couldn't deceive too many people that way if you can read the word for yourself, right? But still they taught, when I was growing up a Catholic, that only the magisterium could really understand the Bible. So, you know, these home Bible studies come out. I mean, you know, that's just ridiculous. You can't get together and study the Bible. Well, Jesus is coming against all that. He is the mediator that bridged the gap between God and man by laying his cross over the gulf that sin had opened up. And now, as believers, we are a kingdom of priests. We all have the right, God-given right, to approach God directly. I don't need a mediator or a special envoy. I can come to God directly through the blood of Christ. This is what Jesus, I believe, hated so much, this doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That ordinary Christians were not worthy to come to God directly. That's why Jesus died, to bridge the gap between sinful man and holy God. And I believe that really is what's in view here. All right. Now the correction. Each one of these letters, except for maybe a couple, has a correction after the con- uh, after the condemnation. Verse sixteen, Jesus said, "Repent." or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, this is taken from the vision of Jesus in chapter 1, as we have been saying. In fact, this letter opens up with that very thing. These things says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword, verse 12, right? And now he comes back to that imagery and says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come to you quickly and fight against you them with the sword of my mouth of course that comes out of chapter 1 verse 16 and uh, we talked about that last time the word sword there is the greek word rymphaia it's a very long heavy double-edged sword that they would use to one purpose to kill crush skulls lop off heads sever arms that kind of, it was designed to destroy to kill this is an imagery of judgment. In fact, you will notice, I'll point it out to you again in just a minute, much of the imagery that is directed against this church is a judgment imagery. Jesus is not happy with this church, and he is telling them so. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't love them. That doesn't mean he's not giving them an opportunity to repent. He just says, right here, repent, or else, or else judgment's coming is the idea, Right? When Jesus talks about coming quickly and fighting against them with the sword of my mouth, he is talking, guys, primarily about the phonies that had infiltrated the church in Pergamos. In every, I'm talking now good evangelical churches. I'm not just talking about, you know, the, uh, the um, mainline denominations. Many of them are totally apostate nowadays. But even in a good evangelical church, you do have some people that, Think they're saved, call themselves Christians. Of course, Jesus knows the heart. And um, these are the ones that tend to, co- I, I hate to put it, cause the most trouble. Remember it, when the children of God came out of Egypt? The Holy Spirit makes it a point to say, and among them came a mixed multitude. Who were the mixed multitude? They were unbelievers that attached themselves to God's people because they didn't want to stay in Egypt. Egypt was a loser. Who wants to stay with the losers? The God of Israel just showed himself to be victorious over the Egyptians. And so out came God's true people, and with them came the mixed multitude. Unbelievers that attached themselves to the people of God, but they were the first ones to murmur and complain in the wilderness, to drag God's people down. The unbelievers, the terrors among the wheat, as Jesus described it, he said, and we talked about this last time with the letter to Pergamus, or I'm sorry, we're finishing it today. Uh, Pergamus means mixed marriage. And Satan felt, if I can't beat him, I'm going to join him. And so he tried to use the world to crush the church and destroy it. It only made the church stronger, so he decides to marry the church with the world. Or marry the world to the church. And that's when the church became the state church. It's never good when the church marries the state or the government okay we talked about that and um, but inside any good church you're going to have a mixed multitude you're going to have some tares that satan has sown among the wheat and they're the ones that water down the church they're the ones that murmur and complain they're the ones that satan can really use to sow division because they're not saved they're critical hearted they're like the mixed multitude in the wilderness murmuring and complaining over every little thing god didn't do for them They're in the church, and the New Testament teaches it's going to get worse before Jesus comes back and makes it better. The church is going to grow more and more apostate. You're always going to have the faithful remnant. You're always going to have the true believers. But the closer we get to Christ's return, the more the devil's going to try to sow into the church. It is these false brethren. And I believe they're what's in view here. Now, Jesus said, beware of what? Of of um, sheep, uh, excuse me, of wolves dressed in she- I get it, it a yeah, of sheep, uh, wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, right? Now we really think, Okay, well that's you know, Christian P- of wolves are unbelievers masquerading as God's sheep. That's that's true, but in that culture, who were the who was the the people that wore sheep's clothing? Shepherds. It's one thing for Satan to sow a person into a church that's an unbeliever and they're a member of the church. It's another thing for him to sow into the pulpit a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. They can do a lot more damage, can't they? I mean, didn't Paul warn us about this in 2 Corinthians 11? That God's got his true ministers and Satan's got his wicked, evil ministers that he sows into the churches and, and, and they can mislead the whole church. Jude talks about these leaders in the church. Why don't you turn to it? You're not far from the neighborhood. Jude, well, there's only one chapter. How about verse 11, though? And he has uh, false leaders in mind, but it could be any false person masquerading as a Christian. Jude 11, woe to them. For they have gone the way of Cain and have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feast. They're cancer among the body. They're, they're satanic plants. They're a disease designed to spread and corrupt and destroy the entire body. Um, these are spots in your love feast while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. That's quite a little string of metaphors there that's designed to kind of communicate uh, who these people are and how bad they are. Well, verse 17, we move into the call and the challenge. The call and the challenge he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him or her of course who overcomes i will give some of the hidden manna to eat now we all know that god fed the children of israel with manna during their wilderness wanderings those 40 years and then commanded moses well this was before the 40 years was done of course uh, but he commanded Moses to put a pot of manna uh, inside, hidden inside the ark as a reminder to future generations how God had fed his people all those years in the wilderness. Of course, that manna was really, but you realize God never called it manna. He always called it bread from heaven. Okay, The people called it manna. It's a derogatory term. It means, what, what is it? What is it? They walked out of their tents that first morning and it's laying on the ground they go what is it manna it's stuck okay uh but it was really never god's word he always called it bread from heaven and you don't want to know why because it represented jesus christ it represented jesus christ in fact we don't have to guess that he told us that that the manna was a type of christ turn to john 6 Let's look at verse 41. John says, the Jews, a reference to the Jewish religious leadership, then complained about him, about Jesus, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And later on he says, If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And that was the statement that caused many to leave and follow him no more because they thought he was talking about cannibalism. And know what he was saying is, you've got to eat my body, drink my blood. The Catholics are wrong. It's not the Eucharist he's talking about. He's speaking symbolically. He's saying, just like you eat food and it enters into your stomach and is assimilated through every part of your body, becomes one with you. You've got to believe, that's what it means to eat of me. You've got to believe in the same way where I become one with you. That's saving faith, by the way where I become one with you, and uh, together we are one, all right? But guys, what he's doing is he's, he's coming against what, what was going on in this church. He's, he's basically say, saying to them, instead of eating things sacrificed to idols, verse 14, the believers in Pergamos needed to feast on God's holy food. What is that? The bread of life found in Jesus Christ, which is the word of God. Jesus is the word. Obviously, when Jesus talks about feeding on me, he's really talking spiritually about feeding on the Word of God, uh, which will uh, satisfy and nourish our spiritual men and women, right? The Ark of the Covenant, we know, was the throne of God on the earth. Not literally, because God's throne is in heaven. The earth is his footstool, okay? But uh, God wanted the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top to be symbolically... Representative of his throne on the earth, and so the Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God, and in contrast to what was going on in Pergamus, uh, which was what he calls Satan's throne. We've talked about what that could be. We don't maybe don't know exactly, uh, although we did give some options last time. But uh, whatever it was, it was definitely uh, Satan's uh, throne of power, and it was situated there in Pergamus at this time in history. Now, here's what's being presented, I believe, okay? You have two kingdoms, basically, all right? You have the kingdom of God, represented by the throne of God in the earth, the Ark of the Covenant. And then you had whatever was going on in Pergamos, which Jesus said twice in verse 13, is where Satan dwelt, his throne. You have two kingdoms in this world. You have the kingdom of God, you have the kingdom of Satan. It's only two choices, okay, really, and what Jesus is saying to this church, because there was a lot of unbelievers that were in this church thinking they were Christians, you've got to choose what throne you're going to be loyal to, God's authority or the devil's authority, whatever the two kingdoms, two choices, okay? He talks about the hidden manna. The man is Jesus, right? Jesus is hidden because where is he right now? He's in heaven. He's ascended back to the Father, seated at his right hand. But he's coming again, and when he does, he will be no longer hidden. He will be revealed. And, folks, that's exactly what the word revelation means, the unveiling, the revealing. Jesus Christ is coming again. Right now he is hidden from the world, But when he comes, he will be revealed, and those who have accepted him in truth will then be allowed to feed on him, I give you to eat some of the hidden manna. Uh, That's just a way of saying that they're going to be able to have fellowship with him, oneness with him, not just during the kingdom age, but for all eternity. Verse 17, again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, the white stone, if you read some commentaries, commentators have different opinions or ideas as to what uh, this white stone could be. And they will point out that back then a white stone was used in a court, a white stone and black stone were used in a court of law to determine a verdict. So, you know, if you thought the, the, uh, the um, uh, person on trial was innocent, you'd cast a white stone. Guilty, a black stone, that kind of thing. It was also used as a symbol of victory in athletic competition back then. The winner would get a white stone oftentimes. It was an expression of welcome given by a host to his guests. So if you came to a person's house uh, for dinner or something back then, often he would give you as a sign of respect uh, a white stone. It was used in a secret ballot back then. A black stone was no. A white stone meant yes. We even see this, uh, we still refer to this practice today when we say someone has been blackballed, rejected, right? However, the stone that Jesus mentions has a name written on it. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Author Mark Hitchcock had this to say about what he believes this white stone uh, is. He said, and I quote, It was common in that day for a ticket to the theater, a special banquet, or some other event to be issued in the form of a white stone with a person's name on it. These stones admitted the bearer to to the event. I believe that given the context, which speaks of eating the hidden manna, the reference to an admission ticket to the future Messianic banquet makes the most sense. Every believer will receive his or her special ticket to the Messianic feast with a new name written on it that no one knows but the individual and the Lord, end quote. i not kind of like that. I think it's probably right on. Thus, Jesus was... If you kind of combine all those uses for white stones back in the first century... Jesus is saying if you turn away from paganism, compromise, and the Pergamus mentality, in other words, if you get really talking to a church, but there's a lot of unbelievers in this church. If you turn away from this Pergamus way of thinking, the compromise, the paganism, someday I'm going to give you a white stone, which will mean you're not guilty, you're victorious, you're accepted, you are welcome in my heaven. But this stone's going to contain a new name. Again, written on it from Jesus. Given, written, the name written on it from Jesus, given to every person as they enter into heaven, right? A name so personal that only the person who receives it will know what that name is. I personally believe that it will contain something like maybe a pet name. A pet name. Kind of name you would give your spouse. You know, something very intimate and personal, something you wouldn't really share with anyone else, very private, very personal. Isn't it interesting that Jesus has got a little pet name for all of us? You know, i shudder to think what mine is, but, uh, you know, a little pet name that uh, it's a really just kind of endears each of us to him, and uh, it's so personal and intimate that we're going to keep it to ourselves, Okay. Guys, let me just say this. The church in America today, for the most part, not all of it, but for the most part, is a compromising church. That's what the Church of Pergamos was all about. They were a compromising church. The church today seems to love the world and tries to be like the world. But very few are standing apart from the world. And that's the problem. God has put us in the world to be a light. He has never wanted us to become part of the world. He has wanted us to stay stay separate from the world, as we have said before. Uh, It's okay for a ship to be in the sea. But watch out when the sea gets into the ship. It's okay for a Christian to be in the world. But watch out when the world gets into a Christian. Do you realize that it took God ten plagues over a period of, I don't know how many days or weeks to deliver God's people out of Egypt Egypt is the type of the world right so it took him a relatively short period of time to take Israel out of Egypt it took centuries to get Egypt out of his people that's the problem God can take us out of the world salvation is the miracle of a moment sanctification that's the work of a lifetime because that's where God is trying to drive from our hearts the world. And a lot of times we think, well, I've, I've really grown. I mean, I'm not like I used to be. And so we think, well, you know, I don't know what we think percentage wise, but, you know, I used to be 100% in the world. No, I'm only 80%. That's good, right, Lord? No. Any leaven leavens the whole, you know? I mean, Jesus Christ is 100% holy. And he wants holiness from us as his people. Not a little bit, not once in a while. Not on Sunday morning and then whatever. Right? He wants us to be completely sold out. Remember we said the Lord Jesus mentions Antipas, my faithful martyr, right? The word Antipas, as we said last time, means against all. Against all. The church today is not an antipist church against all compromise. It is an apostate church embracing all compromise. I'll read these two to you. You can write them down, James 4, verse 4. I love James. He doesn't mince words. Adulterers and adulteresses. He's talking to the church. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow. 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Paul said, therefore come, or God speaking, Paul's quoting the Lord. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Do You understand, God wants us to be completely separate from the world. He doesn't want us to have one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. Because that's what's called being lukewarm. That's what's called being a mixed, in your heart for God. You know, you've got a love of, for God, but a love of the world. And God wants all of our heart. Be like me saying to my wife, well, honey, I love you 80%. Yeah, that's good, right? Poor thing. She loves it when I use her as an illustration. <laughs> I love you 80%. What more do you want? 100%, I want a hundred percent, honey. I don't blame her. I mean, we say to Jesus, we don't even verbalize it, but we, we kind of. This is where we're thinking. Well, Lord, I'm I'm pretty sold out for you. You know, I'm I, I'm I'm pretty much in love with you. Look at my hands. Is this eighty percent love, or is this a hundred percent? This is what He wants, right? The apostate church, even in strong evangelical churches, you have some apostasy, phony believers who, um, and maybe they even are convinced they're Christians. Uh, Matthew 7. Someday on the day of judgment, people are going to stand before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do wonders in your name? I never knew you depart from me. There are people who are serving God who are deceived. They think they are Christians and Jesus knows their heart. The firm foundation of the Lord stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who belong to him. Sometimes we don't. I used to wonder all the time when I was a new Christian, was I was I really saved or not? You know, after forty some years of being a believer, I think I put that to rest. But the idea is that you know, and, and and it's very important that we understand that in 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 Christendom, a billion people, a small percentage are genuinely say born again. You say well, how how much? I don't know. If it was above 15% worldwide Christendom, I'd be shocked. I think realistically, when you look at the Christian church around the world, 85% are made up of religious unbelievers. I hope I'm wrong. I don't know for sure. I know it's a big percentage, though. And these people, after the rapture, are going to become a part of the one-world religious system that the Antichrist will, along with the false prophet, bring into existence. A false one-world religious system that Jesus is going to judge someday when he returns. And we'll get to Revelation 17 eventually. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Someday, soon. But guys, look, before we move on to the next letter, this is not a time to be wishy-washy in our faith. It's not a time to be friends with the world. It's a time to stand up like Antipas did and basically say, I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to be faithful to my Lord Jesus Christ no matter what. Now, for that kind of faith, for that kind of commitment, we need the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about you just being strong in your flesh. You need God's strength, God's conviction, God's faith in your heart. And it's not wrong to pray, Lord, I want more faith. I want more boldness and more commitment. Work in my heart, please, and, 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 and produce that. I think that's just being dependent on God. How could he turn away from that kind of a prayer? But this is a time more than ever where we need to be genuine, sold out, not compromising, you know, not watered down. problem today is you've got too many pastors and pulpits are trying to be men-pleasers because they want to build big churches, and they're not saying the hard things, and they're not, you know, challenging the saints. Paul said, if I seek to be a man-pleaser, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. All right, the fourth letter that Jesus dictated, the letter to the church of Thyatira, listen, is the longest letter written to the smallest church. Proving a small church can have big problems. All right? Jesus takes a harder line with this church. His letter is stern, even harsh, because of the seriousness of the sin in the midst of this group of... Well, I like to call them Christians. I don't know. But um, because of the seriousness of the sin in the midst of this church... The Lord is pretty hard on them, you know. We start at verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Let's stop and look at the city briefly. Thyatira was about 40 miles east of Pergamos and was perhaps the least important of the seven cities politically. The city didn't contain an acropolis of any kind upon which could be built a fortress with high walls, to protect the city from invaders, and so it was not suitable uh, as a major city. Uh, All the major cities uh, had something that allowed them to become really strong, and usually it was some kind of a natural barrier against enemies or a large uh, mount, uh, Acropolis, where they could build uh, the capital on and, and, and so on. Uh, Thyatira didn't have this. It, therefore, it was never looked upon as a major city in the ancient world. It was originally a military outpost town maintained to protect the road from Pergamus to Sardis, a very important road. And so they would uh, station um, soldiers there uh, to keep that road open, that uh, enemies wouldn't come and uh, mess it up. Uh, guys, we don't know a lot about this city, but one thing we do know uh, was that it was a, a somewhat important commercial center. I'm not sure it was a gigantic commercial center. Again, it wasn't a great city, but it was somewhat important as a commercial center. Thyatira was a, a city famous for a, for a certain purple dye, so, uh, so famous for that dye that Homer even mentions it in his Iliad. You remember how that one of Paul's converts, Lydia, can read about her in Acts 16, was a businesswoman from Thyatira, a seller of purple dyed fabrics. Now, they only had two kinds of purple dye in Thyatira, one for the rich and the other for the rest. One for the rich and one for the rest. They used to extract the expensive purple dye one drop at a time from a tiny shellfish called a murex it was a very costly procedure so only the wealthy could afford to buy fabrics dyed with this purple dye now as they usually do they had a cheap Kmart version for all the rest of the folks who wanted to look like they were rich it was made from the matter root you know you know that cheap copy you know the expensive stuff how that looks so good Then they have a cheap knockoff, and it's like, okay, well, you know, that kind of thing. But that was uh, the other purple dye, all right? The city boasted uh, a special temple to Apollo, the sun god, which could explain why the Lord Jesus introduced himself as the son of God. Interesting little play on words. The only time in Revelation where this title is used, the son of God. Thyatira was also noted for its numerous guilds. Now, we talked about the guilds. We studied the letter to Smyrna, and uh, these were roughly the equivalent of today's labor or trade unions. Much of the pressure faced by the Christians in Thyatira came from the guilds. See, you couldn't hold a job. You couldn't have one of these jobs of one of these guilds uh, or a business that... um, uh, was run using uh, tradesmen All right, you couldn't, you couldn't um, uh, have a job or, or run a business if you weren't a member of one of these guilds say so, okay what was the problem well every guild had a patron god or goddess every day they would start their day by pledging allegiance worship to this pagan deity well the Christians in Smyrna wouldn't do that that's why they were so poor and they had to trust God for everything they, they needed to live. That's why they were so strong. They were always on their knees asking God to provide. But uh, throughout the year, there were various feast days to these different pagan deities. And uh, they would offer, well, often numerous animals because the guilds were big. Uh, having many people oftentimes. And so they would have one of these gigantic feast days. They would offer numerous animals to the pagan god or goddess, whoever it was. And then they would have a big barbecue. And they would all eat the meat sacrificed to this pagan deity because in that culture, if you ate meat sacrificed to an idol, they believed uh, you were becoming one with that god or goddess. Again, the Christians... Didn't want to do that, although Paul did say, look, food is food, all right? I mean, you know, whether it was sacrifice to an idol or not doesn't matter. It's just food, all right? But if your conscience really bothers you, then don't eat it. Don't eat it, all right? But these feast days were not only designed to sacrifice animals to these gods and then people would get together and eat the meat and become one with these gods. There was always then the worship of these gods incorporated into these feast days. And a lot of these worship uh, uh, things were nothing more than sexual orgies. A lot of these gods and goddesses were fertility gods and goddesses. They were worshiped through sexual practices. And that was one of the big draws. Well, the Christians in Smyrna wouldn't participate at all. But something was going on in Thyatira that I want to point out, all right, along these lines. Again, Christians faced... The dilemma attending those feasts, if they didn't, they would lose their livelihoods. And how some in the church in Thyatira were handling this situation was of great concern to the Lord Jesus, and he brings it out. Let's look at the church briefly. We looked at the city. Um, as in the case with the churches of Smyrna and Pergamos, the Bible doesn't record the founding of the church at Thyatira. According to Acts 16, verse 14, we read a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. Well, we know she was converted under Paul's ministry when he was at Philippi. She was in town selling fabrics that had been dyed with a special dye. And she got saved in Acts 16, verse 15. It records that the members of her household also came it's a saving faith in Jesus Christ, and we're baptized. Now, many believe that it was Lydia's influence, and maybe she was used by God to spearhead the establishment of a church there in Thyatira. That was her hometown, and she was a very influential gal. I mean, she was a good salesperson. Uh, we can see how, from the way she handled the uh, the apostles and kind of convinced them to you know come to her house, and she was just one of those kind of gals that was good at what she did, And uh, but... Other commentators believe more likely uh, the church in Thyatira was started as an outreach from Paul's ministry in Ephesus where he spent three years. And from there we read in Acts 19, verse 10, many disciples went out throughout that whole area and Thyatira was not far from Ephesus. So uh, they believe that one of Paul's disciples uh, founded the church there. Uh, verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write these things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now, again, guys, this comes out of the vision of Jesus that John saw in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We've talked about this when we studied chapter 1. The eyes of fire, that's just a symbolic way or a spiritual way of speaking of Jesus' searching, penetrating vision of judgment, how he searches out sin, Hebrews 4:13 Nothing in creation is hidden from his sight but all things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. So Jesus sees all and this is a reference to by this uh, eyes of fire in other words piercing penetrating gaze that sees all sin, right? His feet talks about his feet like fine brass. In those days uh, Kings in ancient times sat on elevated thrones. And the idea was that that was purposeful because those that were being judged by this king would always be beneath the king's feet. Thus the feet of the king came to symbolize his authority. His authority. Brass in the scripture is a medal of judgment. So Jesus' authority to judge. Brass a medal of judgment because it could be heated very hot without melting okay and that's why it's always kind of used as a symbol of judgment the fires of judgment right it's interesting once again how many metaphors uh connected with judgment are being presented to this church this church needed to repent for a lot of things jesus loved them but he was not happy with what was going on and so he tells them in no uncertain terms in various ways that judgment's coming if you don't repent all right Symbolically, guys, the Church of Thyatira represents that period of church history from 600 through 1500 A.D., a period commonly called the Dark Ages or the Medieval Period. So what is in view here, guys, is the Medieval, medieval Roman Catholic Church. The Medieval Roman Catholic Church. Now, he does commend them. He does commend them for some things. The Commendation. Verse 19, I know your works. And the Lord Jesus Christ, even if he's got to bring some condemnation, will always still start with what is good. I mean, you know, it's that's encouraging, actually. You know, before he blasts a, a church, he says, look, there's some good things going on. I want to commend you for this, this, and that. And he says, man, there's some bad things going on. i got to bring these to your attention, right? So he first of all starts with a commendation, verse 19. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. The Lord gives this church six words of commendation. And let's compare it to the Roman Catholic Church, and I really think that's what's in view here. Okay, yeah, literal church, Thyatira but symbolically representing the medieval church or the Roman Catholic Church. First of all, he talks about their works. The Roman Catholic Church has had many wonderful people that have done a lot of physical good for others. They have fed the hungry, taken care of the poor, and have fought against abortion and other social evils. Let's be honest. The Catholic Church has done more in this area than the liberal Protestant churches who promote homosexuality and abortion and so many other things that Catholic churches stood firm against. i got to commend them for that. Love. It was a church in which there was love. There's a lot of loving Roman Catholics. In spite of the fact that the church has gone in for ritualism. Ritualism. There were some wonderful saints of God during this period. Uh, men like Peter Waldo, John Wycliffe, John Huss, Severn, Severn, Severn Orola, hard name, Severn we uh, were all men in the Roman Catholic Church. Faith. You will find some true believers with genuine faith in the Roman Catholic Church. I have met a couple, a couple I think it was, uh, not many, Uh, if they're really saved it's not because of the roman catholic church it's in spite of it but the roman catholic church does teach okay um, the deity of christ not that he's one of many gods like the mormons or you know whatever they teach jesus is the second person of the trinity god almighty they believe in the bodily resurrection of christ those are the two doctrines that all the cults come against they don't believe that jesus is almighty god Who died and rose from the dead bodily the Catholic Church believes that in that regard they're Orthodox okay the problem with the Roman Catholic Church with the cults Roman Catholic Church is not a cult but with the cults it's what they take away from the gospel that's usually the problem they don't recognize the deity of Christ don't believe in the resurrection of Christ the Roman Catholic Church, which is not technically a cult, but is a false religious system, the Roman Catholic Church, it's not what they've taken from the gospel, it's what they've added to it is the problem. Check out the letter to, to the Galatians. You know, um, the churches in Galatia, they had added to the gospel. Uh, just like the Roman Catholic Church, it's like, you know, um, yeah, they believe in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, but then to get into heaven, you got to keep the sacraments and light the candles and pray the rosary and do all these other things that are added to purchase your salvation, which that's the problem. Salvation is not something that we can purchase. It's a free gift that God is giving to us, which we just receive by faith. The Catholic Church tries to mix works in with grace. Grace means a gift. But you can't have that. You can't have grace meaning a gift when you're trying to teach salvation by works. So the Catholic Church has redefined grace to mean works. In the Catholic Church, the theology of grace is that you receive little installments of grace according to your works. So every time you go to Mass, every time you let a candle, every time you pray the rosary, every time you give an alms to the poor... You earn little installments of grace that, if you keep going, they accrue to a point where someday you can purchase your salvation. Indulge me to use this illustration one more time. Some of you young folks will have no idea what I'm talking about. When I was a kid, there used to be something called green stamps. Green stamps. Every time you bought something at the store, depending on how much money you spent, you would get a certain amount of green stamps, right? And you could they always had books there behind the counter and they would give you these books and you would lick and paste into each of these pages the green stamps, right? And I don't know how many pages each book held, 30 or something, right? And you would and you'd fill up these books and then they had catalogs. That you could use your green stamps to purchase uh, a new grill, a bike for the kids, you know. So, and, you know, you could, what they were called redemption centers. If you remember that, right, guys? The problem with green stamps was that the pages would always stick together. <laughs> You'd be gluing green stamps in, and two blank pages would stick, and you didn't know it. You go down to the Redemption Center, and they would always make sure they pull those pages. Oh, you're, you're missing a whole two pages here. I mean, I can't get my toaster? No, you got to fill this up. And, and And that's how I view the Roman Catholic theology. Everything you do, every work you do, it's like pasting little installments of grace into your redemption book. But how much is enough for salvation? The church doesn't know. If they could, if they would just tell you, well, to get into heaven you need, you know, five thousand good works. I, you know, we'd work towards that. They don't know. And there's always the danger, and they'll tell you this: where, you know, you present your your works to the Lord. He's like, you're missing a couple pages here. Sorry. You know. I, I, how do you have peace living under that kind of a system? You, you can never rest. You can never have peace. Because you'd always be worried that you didn't have enough good works to get into heaven. But when your theology of salvation is you just believe in Jesus. He did all the work. Then I can have peace. Because I put my faith in him. And he did the work. He paid the price. See, that, that's the difference between true Christianity and every other religious system, including the Roman Catholic system, that tries to make works the basis for earning salvation. But the Catholic Church does have some faith. They mix works into it and kill it, but they, they do believe some of the right things. Jesus and his resurrection, of course. Ministry. Talks about, gee, I know, I know your works, and part of it is the, the ministry he talks about, right? Ministry is a Greek word that means service. I mean, the Catholic Church has been a hard-working church with regard to services. There's the Catholic Charities. They have established many hospitals and orphanages. I went online and checked. The Little Sisters of the Poor has a chapter right here in Chicago and around the country and maybe even the world the catholic church has done many good works to help people let's give them that patience greek word that means endurance they were a church that hung in there during those very dark spiritual days and as for your works jesus said the last are more than the first guys this is a church that's whose works increased rather than diminished over the centuries which begs the question how could a church so full of good works be so far off doctrinally see that's the thing we think well all those good works that that has to mean they're saved right no ephesus had a lot of good works jesus said you work to the point of exhaustion but i have this against you you left your first love now that church was a saved church but they had moved away from Jesus. They had left their first love. This is a church that has many unbelievers in it. And if you talk about the Roman Catholic Church, it fits perfectly. Again, the question is if this church, their works increase rather than diminish, well, how could a church so full of good works be so far off doctrinally? And the reason is because their good works were not rooted in the Word of God. Rather, their church was rooted in social causes. Not that that is wrong to help the poor and feed the hungry and clothe the naked and whatever else uh, you do to help people. Nothing wrong with that. The problem is Jesus doesn't want works. He wants our hearts. And after he has our hearts, in other words, we're genuinely saved all the good works that we do for him are, a, are a, um, uh, you know, a fruit of our love for him. The problem is so many churches are offering God works, 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 and they don't really have genuine saving faith. They think, and we're going to see this with the letter to Th- uh, to uh, Laodicea uh, pretty clearly, but there's a lot of churches and a lot of Christians that think that all God wants from them is to go to church, read the Bible, pray, uh, you know, and, and, and help out at the local soup kitchen or whatever. And in their minds, works equals, I'm right with God. When in reality, you could be working yourself to the point of exhaustion working in the church and still not know Jesus. This is the danger of religion. Somebody has said years ago that religion is inoculative. It, uh, it gives you just enough self-righteousness that makes you uh, you know, uh, immune to God's righteousness. In other words, you have a form of godliness, right? You try to talk to a, a, a churchgoer, like a Roman Catholic. How many Roman Catholics have you talked to? I know I've talked to them that believe because they well, baptized and they go to church and pray the rosary and they go to church and do works, they're right with God. See, they're lukewarm. That's the hardest person to reach for Christ because they have a form of godliness. If they were a biker, you know, cussing up the wallpaper off the wall or something else, no pretense, they're, they're not a Christian, they don't make any bones about it, at least you know what you got. You can share Jesus with them, and either they receive him or they reject him. But a religious person, like a Roman Catholic, I know Roman Catholics who go to church every day of the week. And when you talk to them about salvation, they get hostile that you would even suggest they're not right with God. Look at the works I'm doing. Lukewarm. I wish you were either hot or cold. Hot, on fire for the Lord. Cold. Cold total pagan unbeliever, lukewarm, but you're lukewarm. That's the hardest person to reach. I'm not teaching about Laodicea tonight. So, um, But you, get, you understand, right? We'll have to leave it there, guys. We'll have to leave it there and um, pick it up next week. There is some stuff coming that you want to miss. This church, if it really does represent the medieval church, the Roman Catholic church, there are some stuff coming up That will blow your mind. Remember we said every name means something? The meaning of every one of the names of these churches feeds into what was going on in that church. What do you hear what Thyatira means? It will blow your mind. So we'll get to that, God willing, next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Of course, it is a light that lights our path through this dark world. Give us grace to always walk in the light of your truth. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.